0: in Mark's gospel in a series we've been titling Re. Re is just a little uh, conjunction we add to words that kind of shapes their meaning in a new way that creates something fresh or new. And and yet it also brings realities that maybe we've forgotten back together. So we think of the words like reconnect or realign. And and that's what we're trying to do this year in the body of Christ through the teaching of his word. And we've been using Mark's gospel as our basis. And today we're in chapter 2. I was really taught in a, in, a, in a study of this. I came across a quote by N.T. Wright. We've shared it a few times in this series, but it really captures what we're trying to do, and it'll be on the screen today. It says, if you want to know God, who he is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is or what grief is, look at Jesus. And go looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama, which was him as the central character. Guys, we are in his drama. We are in his reality. We are in his plan, his purpose, and his season. And I believe we're in a time as a church across our nation and world where we've got to come back and say, who is Jesus? What did he say? What did he do? And are our lives aligning with him? Or is, our, is our testimony and our identity equal, or do we need to reconnect those two things? I believe this. I believe a lot of the growing cynicism toward and withdrawal from the church in America right now is fostered by the obvious gap between what many claim to believe and yet how they live their lives. I can't say I believe one thing and live a different way. I I can't say I love Jesus and live like I don't know him. And it's important that we reconnect this and we ask God, how's that being reflected in our attitudes and our actions? And and what can we do to even change that? So today, we're going to go a little further into the story of Jesus. And we're going to look into an area that that impacts all of us, all right? Because if you remember, guys, the people were, they were looking for a deliverer. We're looking for him to deliver, aren't we? But they were really looking for a deliverer. The prophecies were there, the historic text of the Old Testament pointed to the day when a Messiah would come, the the anointed one, the Christ, and he would come. But yet over time, their, their anticipation and their concept of a deliverer was a deliverer in a way that was not what God was bringing. They were looking for deliverance from current circumstances, and he was bringing a deliverer that would deliver them from the curse of sin that was destroying their lives, I mean, if you think about it, they were looking for deliver, not necessarily Jesus Christ. We've said it before. Jesus came to deliver God's creation and his people from the oppression of sin. But he did not show interest in delivering them from the oppression of Rome. And that caused problems. He didn't come to make their lives better. He came to give them a whole new life. He didn't come to change their circumstance as much as he came to give them a whole new heart. We said it last week. He does transplants, not cosmetic surgery. And sometimes in the church of Jesus Christ today, we're more interested in cosmetic surgery than we are in the heart transplants. As we're going to see today, he didn't come to patch up their religious system. He came to reveal a new and better covenant, which God based upon relationship with him and not ritual in their worship. But you know, that wasn't well-received. It wasn't well-received by those who were in charge in the day. It wasn't well-received. That's the thing with lordship, guys. We have to understand. It's never really well-received because we like to be in control. Lordship is surrender. Lordship is giving him everything. Lordship is saying, God, I, I find my identity now in you. My life is hidden in Christ. And as we read this text, it's easy to look back at those days and say, oh, how did they do that? How could they have seen that? How did they, why did they think that way? But a better question is, why do we think that way still today? Why do we still struggle with some of the same things? Because again, they wanted Christ to fit their mold, but Jesus was clearly not interested. So pick up the story, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. He was saying, look, there's difficult times coming. my, My walk on the earth is short, but understand, there'll be difficult times, but I will be with them even to the ends of the earth. And he takes a little further, and he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment." It's like inviting your friend to church for the first time and you think you've got a sewing lesson going on. You know, Jesus is bringing these profound truths and you can just imagine that moment. They're like, what? Wait, wait, what are we talking about here? And what he was saying was this. He goes, my kingdom is completely different than what you expect. And it can't be put into the old forms or traditions that you are comfortable with. We talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. Oh, come, move, breathe on us. But, you know, he is both the comforter and the discomforter at the same time. He comforts us in Christ, but he also brings discomfort because he has a wonderful way of pointing out the areas that we have not really trusted God in. And he goes on, he says, if he does put an unshrunk cloth in an old garment, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old and the worse and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins if he does... <laughs> the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for, for fresh wine skins. He was saying, my kingdom is totally different than what you expect. Now, today's scripture, guys, is not about fasting, and it's not about winemaking or sowing, so I just want you to settle in, all right? But it is about understanding what God is doing in us and how he wants us to walk in relationship with him. Truly to understand this passage, you have to go back one verse to where we ended last week. Just look back for a second to Mark 2, verse 17. If you remember, we were talking about how Jesus came and he led Levi, the tax collector, into relationship with God through Christ and to leave his trade, which was a horrible trade. We we compare it to modern pimps or, or drug dealers. And, and now he's one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, but Jesus used that opportunity to speak to the religious leaders in a way that ultimately led to his crucifixion. For he said to them in Mark chapter two, verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, "Those who are well, th- those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Just real quick, last week we shared this thought. Jesus had come as the great healer, the long way to Messiah. But he didn't come just to cure cancer, to heal uh, diseases that were common in man. He came to cure the disease that was destroying mankind. He came to bring the ultimate healing, the ultimate cure to sin, which from the fall of Adam and Eve in the guard had been destroying God's creation and is still bringing havoc today, but yet now we have the healer. Now we have the Messiah, now we have the Christ who through his death on the cross and rising from the grave gives us forgiveness. But he made it clear that that only those who were aware of their sickness would receive the cure of forgiveness. His statement was one that went directly against the religious leaders of the day. He didn't come to call the righteous. No, that was an affront to them because they thought their life was about becoming righteous by what they did. They consider themselves better than others. Who needs a healer if I'm good? Who needs forgiveness if I'm okay? And yet we look at the Pharisees and we make them out to be these enemies of God, but yet we so often walk in and out of being modern Pharisees today because, again, the very thought of him saying that to them was there was this conflict that ultimately would lead to his crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. I just want to take a second and let us kind of see this picture. Because throughout the book of Mark, we're going to always hear these terms, religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, different, th- different words for that. And we have to recognize these were not bad people. In fact, if you interviewed them, they say, oh, we love God. We love God. In fact, if they were here today, you'd probably tell me to get out of the way and let them speak. Because of their dedication to God. If you think what it meant to be a Pharisee, these men memorized the first chapters of the Bible word for word, the Pentateuch. They, they memorized the first five chapters of the Bible. They tithed off everything. It wasn't like, pass the plate, let me give you 10% of what, uh, what I earned today. Jesus con- confronted them at one point. He said, you even tithe on your mint, your dill, and your cumin. I mean, who around here ties off their herbs, right? <laughs> I mean, that's intense. That's intense. Someone gives me a tomato, I got to cut it in tents. You know, if you think about it. They prayed and meditated. Church, listen, nine hours a day, three two-hour, uh, three three-hour segments um, throughout the day, praying, going after God, and they fasted two days a week. These were not bad people. But yet something happened to their lives over time where they ultimately fell in love with the rituals of religion and made that a source of pride instead of understanding the relationship that God wanted them to have. I want you to see this. Religion is not a substitute for an authentic relationship with God. Church attendance is not a substitute for a relationship with God. Tithing, serving, giving... Whatever the things are that are the outflow of our relationship, those cannot replace or stand in the way of a relationship with God who knows us by name, who calls us by name, who cares for us in a way that we can't even quite comprehend. I go a little further to say it this way, again on the screen. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure, not an obligation. Too often we make it an obligation. But you read the parables of Jesus, and he, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a, a, a treasure hidden in a field that a, that a man found, and he went and sold everything he had to buy that field because he had to have it. And church, we have to have it today. We have to have what God has for us. He wants it all for us. But these religious leaders made themselves what we would call self-righteous because they thought their relationship with God, their worth, so to speak, was based on what they did and what they knew instead of who they worshipped. Our our value is not based on what we do. Our value is not on what we know. Our value, our ultimate worth is found in one thing, and that is we've been touched by the master's hand. We've been touched by the master, and that value comes in the very blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, in a sense, what took place is they thought they were doing God a favor with their devotion, but in fact, they were creating barriers that made God inaccessible to the very people God came through Christ to be the great healer of. They were were a barrier to those who were not quite as disciplined or pious as them. I mean, how many highly disciplined people do we have in the house today? I mean, you like getting things done and you're good at it. You even want to admit that? You're like, is that a trick question? I'm raising my hand. I'm a regimented person. I mean, I am a boring regimented person. Ask my wife. I eat the same thing every day. If I get away with it, I wear the same jeans every day. And then she steals them and washes them every once in a while. I I mean, routine and discipline and just making life happen. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. But if that finds its way into our relationship with God, we can be about doing more than we can be about being. And we miss the whole point. And we become just as self-righteous as the Pharisees. You see, we must never forget that the righteousness of God is not a reward for living right. (laughs) Our righteousness is not going, good job, guys, way to go, I'll make you righteous. No, our righteousness is an unmerited gift from our Father that irresistibly results in right living. Because he's made us righteous, then we live it out. Because he's made us righteous, then we see people through a different lens. Because he's made us righteous, we see all of life through the lens of his grace and his mercy because there's nothing you have. There's nothing I have that is not an absolute grace gift or mercy gift from our God. And we have to recognize that. Their self-proclaimed piety made them obstacles to God's mission and their testimony, how they lived, how they loved, how they treated others, literally turned people away from God instead of bringing people to God. Check this out on the screen. They thought, listen, they thought their discipline and rituals would be hedges of protection for God's people. I wanted to stop right there. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we have no role or no cause to try to protect God. He can do a pretty good job of that himself. He's God. But they thought that their rituals are somehow protecting God. We can't can't let God get any further out of the box, or we can't let people create a new box for him. But ultimately, their, their, their rituals and discipline became prisons that keep people from truly knowing the love of God. Because it was an obligation. It was a duty. It was a drudgery. And yet God said, I came to give you life. I came to give you life to the full. I came to give you abundant life through my son Jesus Christ. And yet you turned it into this. And then specifically in this area, we see the conflict arising. And that's in the passage today where they begin to debate the issue of fasting. Fasting. Why do the disciples of John fast and the Pharisees fast, but yours don't? Here's what they were really asking. They were like, why don't you seek God the way we think people should be seeking God? It'd be like you today, like, why didn't you raise your hands? Why why didn't you come up front? Why didn't you read 10 chapters this week? Why didn't you show up for prayer meeting? Why aren't you worshiping the God the way I think you should worship God? That's what they were asking. They, They were literally bringing to this point where they made a doctrine out of something that was never a command. They made a doctrine out of something that was never a command. Listen, while the Old Testament scriptures never commanded God's people to habitually fast, means going without food for a period of time, these religious ma- leaders made it a ritual to prove their piety and identity as men of God. God never commanded it, but yet they took it and made it a ritual, and that was how they judged others and judged themselves whether they were righteous before God. Now, let's just get, get plain and practical. Is fasting a bad thing? No, fasting is not a bad thing. I'm not going to say it's a fun thing. But did God call us to habitually fast? Now you're like, oh, not really. Not really. Fasting in the Old Testament, remember in this day with Jesus, all they had was the Old Testament. Fasting in the Old Testament was a response and not a ritual. It was a response. So think about it. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament. 613. Ten of which we're pretty familiar with, right? Ten commandments, okay? But not one of them is to command to fast ritually. Fasting was a response to mourning. It was a response to sorrow or even a call to repentance where maybe Israel turned their backs on God and the leader calls them into a time of fasting. It was always a response, but it was always voluntary. Now we fast forward to Jesus' day. And fasting had become a religious ritual. It had become a discipline. It was something that instead of leading them closer to God, literally filled them with pride. In fact, Jesus told a parable about it in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18. Beginning in verse 9, it'll be on the screen or on you version on your tablets or phones. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and you the audience that's like, hey, a Pharisee, hey, he's a good guy. And the other tax collector, boo, it's a tax collector. He's going to be the bad guy. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Sadly, a sign of brokenness and humility had turned into an area of pride. Pride so deep that God literally in the word says he, Hates it. In Proverbs chapter 6, we won't go there, but in Proverbs chapter 6, it talks about seven things that God hates. And the very first thing it says, the number one thing up front, he says, I hate haughty eyes. Not hot eyes, haughty eyes. It's hard to say with a southern accent. And what he is saying is, if you look down on others, you and me have a problem. If you look down on others, you and me have a problem. So old Pharisee, when you say, oh, I thank you, I'm not like him, boom, your prayer is not even heard. Tell me you fast, good for you. Tell me you tithe, good for you. But your spirit stinks to heaven. And God says, I'm not having any of that. You see, the Pharisee believed his actions earned him favor with God. But guys, Christianity is not a process of trying to earn God's love. It's a relationship when we reflect God's love. It's out of that relationship that we reflect who he is. It's not a process to earn it. For the Christian, if you think about it, the Bible isn't a list of requirements. I know some of you really feel, feel that's the case. But it is a list of results that come from experiencing God's love. It, is a, it points to the joy unspeakable in the full of glory. It speaks to a peace that transcends understanding in the midst of chaos. It speaks to a healing that comes from our God out of his compassion. But yet so often man focuses only on the requirements. Now let's just be clear, Jesus was not against fasting. In fact, we already looked at it earlier in this series. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness But remember, he didn't do this as a ritual. He didn't do it as a sign of superior spirituality and even not not as a necessary thing that the father commanded, but he fasted out of obedience to the Holy Spirit who led him into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And we fast today for the same reasons. You say, well, pastor, why did you call us into a fast in January? Why do we do that every year? Because we too fast in response to extreme circumstances. We're not commanded to do so as a discipline or ritual. God's not more pleased with us when we fast, but there is a benefit to our fasting. When we're facing difficult decisions, when we hit a place of confusion, when we we hit a place where where we just know that we're not in that right relationship with God where we want to be, then fasting is a wonderful tool that God has offered us. But yet he's not sitting in heaven with a checklist going, yep, never fasted, Mm, never coming to heaven. Now, the reason we think it was a ritual and command is because Jesus addressed fasting. He said, when you fast, don't look like you're dying. Don't look like you're miserable. Man, put some makeup on. Get your face washed and get out there and just love me in the midst of this. Not sit back and go, I'm giving up chocolate. I think I'm dying. Caffeine's another story, but chocolate, I'm not so sure. Some of y'all should not have given up caffeine during the fast this year. I'm just just saying you see, the thing with fasting is this. It, it is a tool not to, meant to be a rule. It's a tool not meant to be a rule. So, so we have to ask then, okay, we've got our, our hands around this passage. Well, then, so what? My mentor in preaching said, every time you write a sermon, you've got to answer the, reason, the question, so what? Well, how does this affect you and I? We're like, oh, okay, bad Pharisees, good Jesus. No, that's, that's not it. what what it speaks to is a few things that I think are so critical to us if our testimony and our identity are going to line up, if we are going to truly be an ambassador for Christ. Because here's what we need to understand. God wants obedience that comes from faith, but we tend to give him rituals. God wants obedience that comes from faith, but we tend to give him rituals. Oh, listen, the Bible calls for, for obedience, right? But not out of obligation. Not out of shame, And not out of fear. Well, I better do this or God's going to get me. You know, I better do this or things aren't, he's not going to answer my prayer. I better do that or, you know, I'm I'm just, I'm going to be on the outs. And yet Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. But it comes out of that love relationship. It's the I get to, not I, I have to. That makes all the difference. It's the, I, I can't believe I get to do this. I can't believe I get to serve others. I can't believe I get to be generous. I can't believe I get to love enemies in a different way than the world does instead of I have to. You see, our tendency is sometimes to think that God has a checklist in heaven and our duty is to make sure we all get a gold star by completing all of it. But understand this, some of the man-made rituals, some of the disciplines, can be helpful they're not bad they're not bad it's not bad to journal it's not bad to fast it's not bad to to have rituals that help build your life but the problem is this the problem lies and we are deceived into believing that god is more pleased with our rule keeping than with our ability to love others as ourselves see the pharisees didn't love anybody but themselves Oh, there's a whole chapter in the Gospels where Jesus just chews them out. It is not a love chapter by any means. He called them empty graves. He called them whitewashed sepulchers. He said, outside you look great, but inside you're just filthy, rotten, stinking, dead flesh. You're like, that's not my Jesus. Yeah, that's your Jesus. He's saying, don't go around in the office, you know, quoting all the little Christianese and the little catchphrases of Christians and yet not love your brothers as yourself. He says, you can't walk through your school going, I can't believe those people. When those people are the very ones Christ said, you are to be an ambassador towards. You can't come into church on Sunday and say, oh, well, why don't they sit in the first five rows? If they love Jesus, they sit in the first five rows. Those back row people, I don't know. No, he says you can't do that. Because completing a checklist doesn't make up for us living like hell. The problem is not the ritual, but it's when I trust in the ritual instead of trusting in God. The rituals didn't come from an evil intent, but yet they, they led to a place where, unfortunately, they re- became rules and not tools, and they became a prison to both us and to those we've imposed them upon. I can pray, I can tithe, I can read my Bible, I can obey every command. But if I don't love, I become a hindrance to the gospel yeah, so good. instead of becoming an ambassador for Christ. Oh, Jesus threw something out that was so critical, so earth-shattering, and we look at it now like, why? John chapter 13, verse 34, it'll be on your screen, it says this, he says, a new commandment I give you. You should love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. New? New? Really? It's hard to imagine that a joy-filled spiritual family of love would somehow be a novel idea when Jesus came back to the earth. But that's what man did to the religion of God. That's what man did to the worship of God. And yet it reveals the spiritual landscape that Jesus was walking in because here's what the Pharisees would say in that verse. They said, oh, you will know that, that we are gods if you fast twice a week. You will know that you are, we are his disciples if you pray or meditate nine hours a day. You will know that I am a disciple if I quote scripture that I have memorized that you don't. You will know that I am a disciple if I attend every time the doors are open at the temple. And yet that's not what Jesus said. He said, the mark of a disciple is one who loves the way Jesus loves. The mark of a disciple is one that is so saturated with the presence of God that they can't help but love. And to come into circumstances no one else is willing to go into. Listen, these Pharisees, they didn't want to be enemies of God, but, but something came into their hearts that we've got to be so careful of today, and that is pride. And pride gripped their hearts a place where it turned their devotion to God into just a religious show. They pointed to their own self-righteousness. And now Jesus was making it clear, I'm not having this. Let me give you a modern example, okay, because it's hard to picture Pharisees and all that. Say you know on Instagram that there's a guy that has followers like you wouldn't believe. And the reason being is he's a romantic guy. And you've been following all along how he's been courting and now he's going to come in and propose to his beautiful fiance and he goes over the top. I mean, candles, violins, hearts floating in the air, doves flying and he gets on one knee and he he presents her a ring that's so big her hand just falls with a diamond, you know. And, And everybody's like, oh, oh, what a guy. Then they have the wedding and it's the wedding from Instagram. I mean, you could not picture a bigger wedding. I mean, countries have smaller GDPs than that wedding cost, okay? And everybody's like, way to go. Man, that's the guy. People are like sending pictures of it to their boyfriends. Like, just, just a clue. <laughs> just a clue. But who knew that when they got married and he finally has her and now they're one and now they're living together that he is also abusive that also he'd been cheating on her, even while dating and now his adulterous ways continue. Who knew that, uh, that, that he had have an anger problem, that even in the, in the moment of even a disagreement, his explosive anger would come out. Now, would we call him a good husband? No. And, and now that the actor is unmasked, we don't blame her when she says enough and she walks away. Well, this is what's happening between Jesus and the Pharisees. He's saying, you look good. Man, everything you do should be on Instagram. It's awesome. But when I take the mask off, all I find is a player. All I find is a fake. All I find is a hypocrite. See, Jesus was dealing with it then, but God had already dealt with it in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 1, he was dealing with things that were actually his commands. And he was having to redress the, the children of Israel and saying, guys, you've made this into something I don't even recognize. And he, and he put it this way in Isaiah 1.13. He said, bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Well, who, who asked for incense? He did. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure inequity and in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are full of blood. You see, when the ritual is trusted more than the relationship, God says, I'm not having it. I'm not having it. And at the end of the day, the only proof that I know God and I love God is actually obedience through faith. Again, not out of duty, not out of obligation, not out of shame, not out of fear, but out of that love relationship with my God, walking in obedience to him, honoring his creation, blessing others as he has blessed me. Because if you understand the relationship God has called you and I into, it, it really is, it's about the fruit more than it is about the process. It's about the fruit more than it is about the process. Now, I'm, again, I'm going a teller myself, I'm a process guy. Give me 10 steps to anything, I will get those 10 steps done faster than you will. That's how I'm made up. Don't tell me I can't run through that wall, run through that wall. And a lot of you are made up that way. And a lot of you are like, I can't even relate to that. Well, you got issues too. But (laughs) they all are found in the understanding of what does a relationship with God look like? He said, it's about the fruit, not the process. My human nature is to substitute simple obedience with rituals and checklists. And at the same time, we can overlook clear areas of obedience, thinking that our rituals make up for the difference. Well, God's going to overlook the fact I hate my neighbor because I'm really good at leading worship. God's going to overlook the fact that I'm not honoring my spouse because, you know what, I volunteer in kids' ministry at least once a month, and that should count for, like, eternity. So what is the fruit God wants? What's he looking for? I'm glad you asked. Four things. We're going to bring it down here. Number one... He says, I want, to, I want to see the fruit of justice in your lives. Now, justice is one of those words that we don't even know how to define anymore. We, we, we toss it around and it means something different to everybody. But the Word of God made it clear justice is simply caring for the rights of others, it's fairness, it's reasonableness. I like to put it this way it's everybody having enough. We, we, we don't just take into ourselves and everything's about me, it's about us. Now, let's be honest. We live in a world of injustice. Can we agree with that? And with social media and news feeds and Reddits and all that, listen, we can't solve every injustice in the world, but we can focus on what's taking place right in front of our faces. The sphere of influence we have in our workplace, our neighborhood, it's Hope Street Food Pantry saying, not on my street. It's not about, oh, there's injustice going on in Bahrain. We need to do something about that. Well, I'm not in Bahrain. But on my street, if there's hungry people, I should, have a, I should understand something. If I'm blessed, I should do something about that. I, I should not just be a partaker. I should be a giver. Justice. Second thing. He says there should be a fruit of mercy in our lives. Quick to forgive. Quick to overlook. I mean, how many times we cried out, God, have mercy. And what we're saying is, God, please don't give me what I deserve. Please don't give me what I deserve. So if I'm growing in mercy, I'm going to give others better than they deserve. It's the opposite of living in the flesh. Because living in the flesh is this. We're keeping score. That's fleshly living. I'm not going to let you get over on me. Mm -mm. I'm going to focus on getting even and guarding my life so that no one can ever take advantage of me. That's the world. That's fleshly living. But if we live in mercy, we're focusing on Others, giving them what they don't deserve. Now, let's just be clear. It doesn't mean that we become spiritual doormats. It doesn't mean that we just overlook everything. No, there's some people that need earthly justice too. There's a reason for authorities. We would agree with that. But yet God says, let our default be mercy and let it come out of a heart of justice. And it flows to the third fruit, and that is humility. Oh, it's hard to be humble when you think you're humble. Humility. Humility. Humility simply to me is this, it's I treat others as if they are better than me. It doesn't mean that I am less than everybody or I'm worse than everybody. It means that I treat everybody as if they are better. For me, I like the way Paul put it in Philippians. It's not on the screen, but it's this. It's do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's the difference in this. When you walked into the room today, if you're walking in your humility and you see others, you're like, oh, you're here. That's amazing. But if you're not walking in humility, you walk in you're like, I'm here. Let's go. Most important person has gotten here. Let's, let's light it up. Let's go. But yet when we see others more significant than ourselves, we treat them differently because we treat them in the fourth fruit. We treat them with love. In fact, Jesus said we sum up the law and the prophets with this thought. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Say, Pastor Mike, that, those are wonderful fruit. Where did you find those? In the Bible. Micah 6, 8, throw it on the screen. He told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before your God. That word kindness can also be mercy there. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love... I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Can I tell you, I wish Paul would have stopped right there and not written the rest of the chapter? Because in that moment, I could then define what love looks like. I could say, oh, I know love because I, I would define it as what I'm good at. But no, he goes further. He says, love is patient. Oh, I wish he hadn't put that in there. <laughs> love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then we cry out for mercy. And we say, oh God, who can love like that? Only when you let God love through you. And let the relationship with God not be about rituals. To truly be a relationship. Because when we do that, it stands out. It's different than the world's love. But it's easier to live in a checklist of man than to look in the mirror of the Word of God and say, Is my life marked with justice, God? Is my life marked with mercy? Is my witness humility? And is my witness love? You see, to produce this fruit is not about ritual. It's about dying to self and letting Jesus produce fruit in my lives as he lives through me. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. So God wants us to have a relationship. We, We present rituals. He wants us to focus on the fruit. We focus on the process. And finally today, as we wrap this up, he wants us to never turn our tools into rules. He never wants us to turn your tools into rules. I'm not saying to ignore anything God has commanded. Does he say pray? Yeah. Is it good to read our Bibles? Yeah. In fact, if I'm going to live obedient to the Bible, then I have to know the Bible. We can't just live by what we call our own truth. That's one of the big fallacies of this generation. And somehow live in obedience to God, because you're not living in obedience to God if you're living in your own truth and not his truth. Because your truth may be, I'm going to hate my enemies. I'm going to get even, and God says, uh-uh, love them. You see, we, we say, okay, then. We need the Word of God. So we come along, and we come along with each other, and we say, well, then you need to read your Bible. We go a little further. We say, in fact, you can't be a disciple of Jesus unless you read your Bible. In fact, we think you ought to read a certain amount of your Bible every day. And for some, that works. But if the requirement to be a follower of Christ is to read the Bible every day, then nobody was spiritual before the Gutenberg Press because nobody had a Bible. And if you're dyslexic, sorry, going to hell. Can't read, can't follow. No, the, the issue is not, do I need to read the Bible every day? The issue is, do I need to get the word, the living word of God into my life every day? And that's different than reading your daily devotion and forgetting it and going on about your way and feeling justified. It's living in the spirit and letting the word of God come into us and and meditating on it and saying, all right, God, how does that reflect in my life? How how are you shaping and changing me? It's not about the the tool. It's about about letting something happen in us by God's word. So we got to be careful when we obey God's commands, give, serve, fellowship, to remember they're not a checklist, but they are tools to produce fruit in our lives. Let's just be honest. Some things work for you that don't work for others. I have in my office probably 30, no, let's bring it down, about 20 journals that all have about three pages written in them. Because every year I'm like, God, I'm going to journal. People that I know journal that are really spiritual, I'm going to journal. About three days into it, it's like, mm, it's done. But others journaling, man, it is your lifeblood. So journal. But don't look at others and say, well, if you're not journaling, you're not as spiritual as I am. I mean, we are all different. Having a real rigid prayer life has not been my story. That may shock you and make you run for the door. Pastor, doesn't, I pray. But I don't have like every day at this time for this amount of time I'm going to get before my God. But yet I spend time with him all day, every day. There are times of focused prayer. There's times of pouring in, but there's also times where it's just talking all day long, going through that day. God, what are you doing in me? God, how are you being reflected through me? God, what do you want taking place in me? It's learning to get quiet and letting God speak into our lives. Do what works for you and produces the fruit that God wants in your life, but don't judge another person or yourself by a ritual while ignoring the fruits. I probably shouldn't have put this in my notes. But I said, Pharisees are the modern jerks for Jesus that just need to knock it off. They turn the word into binoculars instead of mirrors, and forget that God is producing fruits of righteousness in us and through us. So am I becoming more just? Am I becoming more merciful? Am I becoming more humble? Am I becoming more loving? That's the question we have to ask. Because here's a fact I know with certainty. Coming to know Christ should never make anyone mean, harsh, or arrogant. So, Pastor, how do we deal with this? Do what God's commanded. Serve, love, give, forgive, engage. But do it out of heart of faith. Not out of duty, not out of fear, not out of a shame. Neither sit back and write it all off and go, I'm so afraid of being religious, I'm going to do nothing. Then you sit, soak, and you just become sour. And again, it doesn't reflect to the world who Christ is. The goal of this series was let's bring Christ back into Christianity. Let, let's let's reflect him as ambassadors of Christ. It's all about the fruit, but the Pharisees thought it was all about the fasting schedule. And Jesus said, "My kingdom will never fit in your checklist."